welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes back John Anerson to talk Neil Young, Stephen Stills, and the Buffalo Springfield. Email us at LetItRollPodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by John Anderson, the author of For What It's Worth, The Story of Buffalo Springfield. John, welcome back. Thank you. Nice to be here, Nate. I almost got your name right this time, but we're learning. We're... So the Buffalo Springfield, this is a band that's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that's had at least one album go platinum, although it took 25 or 30 years to do it. But in a lot of ways, this is a band that's seen as a coulda, woulda, shoulda band that didn't quite accomplish their potential. What's your take on the Buffalo Springfield? I think the coulda, woulda, shoulda is, is appropriate. When they came together, they had so much potential. I mean, keep in mind when they did their first album in 66 and they recorded it in, you know, late summer, early fall of 66, it was all original material. And the birds weren't doing uh, all original material by then, you know, certainly contemporaries of the Buffalo Springfield. So they were well ahead of the curve uh, of their, uh, you know, those who were in the same kind of category as they were. Brilliant band. And, and, and I think that it's, that has shown itself, you know, in decades later with the success of Stephen Stills and Neil Young and Richie Foray, and although briefly in the band, uh, Jim Messina as well. Incredible talents in that band, so much potential, but plagued by so many problems, internal and external problems. That's out. It, it's amazing that they were able to get out the music that they did. And the original band was only together about 18 months. I mean, they had people in and out in between those times. But just, just the fact that they they recorded three albums, three great albums, but also, you know, when the box set came out, and it had 37 tracks that had that no one had heard before that are all great. Yeah, it's quite a uh, CV, um, especially for such a short period of time. But what a volatile mix of personalities. And, and before we start on the story, I want to talk about the book a little bit, too. You co-authored it with Richie Fure. Is that the right way to say his name? Yeah, and it's uh, yeah, it's Richie Ferre, and it's uh, it's John. It's, although it seems to be always saying Anne, but it was John Anderson with Richie Ferre is, is the the original crediting on it. Um, I felt that I needed to have uh, someone from the band on side to 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 make it you know to to authenticate the story rather than just me kind of doing research from articles and things like that. And Richie is the guy that I guess has the least. Uh, skin in the game in terms of ego. He, you know, I mean, Stills has his own perspective. Young has his own perspective. But Richie was the guy in the middle between them. And he doesn't have an axe to grind in any way at all. So he was he was a natural. Plus, I'd already connected with Richie when I did an earlier book on uh, Neil Young's Canadian years called Don't Be Denied. So uh, when I contacted Richie again and said, you know, let's do this, he, he, he jumped at uh, the opportunity to do so. So he's the principal uh, interview throughout the book, but he's not exclusively the only interview throughout the book, but he, he really has, um, I, I, I think he's got a really clear perspective on how everything went down. Yeah. I mean, he comes across as a very level-headed, even to mm -hmm. nice guy, which is not something you can say about Stephen Stills and Neil Young. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. I mean, they, they, they've got their, you know, their own, as I said, axe to grind in the way they perceive things. Uh, you know, Richie had this, I, I remember reading early interviews back in the 66 and early stories on the band in Teen Set magazine, and he was dubbed the Joe College guy, you know, so, you know, straight-laced guy, and he certainly has maintained that uh, throughout his career. 
Yeah, absolutely. And his career was pretty notable. He went on to found co-found Poco with Jim Messina and quit right before they had their most mainstream success, but made several high quality albums with Poco. So um, pretty successful. So, you know, post Buffalo Springfield career in his own right. Although when compared with the mega success of Stephen Stills with Crosby, Stills and Nash and Neil Young, both with Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young and then Solo, uh, you know, Richie, Richie got uh, passed by, but he certainly made a bigger impact in the music business post Buffalo Springfield than the bassist Bruce Palmer and the drummer Dewey Martin. Nonetheless, that original fivesome, even though there were nine people in the band in 18 months, there's really a core five. And they came together in a really unique way, or at least four out of the five. Can you tell the classic Hearst traffic jam meeting story? Well, you know, it's uh, I, just just to, to preface that, three of the five guys in the Buffalo Springfield were Canadians. And I, I'm in Canada here. I'm in Winnipeg. So well, for fine. me, and I'm sure for a lot of other Canadians, it was a great sense of pride that um, one of the most beloved bands in the United States was three-fifths American. <laughs> but, you know, when I did the book, I knew that uh, certainly the key moment, and it, it, it's, it's become epic, it's become mythical, is this traffic jam meeting. And I, I knew that there were five principles involved with it, so I needed to get the perspective of all five. I didn't want to write it from, from my own perspective as if I knew what would happen. I wasn't there. But these five guys were. And it's this traffic jam uh, encounter on Sunset Boulevard on April the 6th, 1966. Neil Young had already come down to... Um, to LA looking for Stephen Stills. You know, and there's lots of, you know, pre-story to all of that too, which we'll talk about later, but he was looking for Stephen Stills and he brought Bruce Palmer, a bass player that he had been working with in the Minor Birds with him. And the idea being to form a band with, with Stephen Stills. And they arrived on April 1st, which Neil said to me, he said it was rather appropriate, April Fool's Day. And they spent six days looking for Stills and couldn't find him. So on April the 6th, they decided to heck with this, we're gonna head for San Francisco. So they're going one way on Sunset uh, Boulevard and coming the other way is a white van which belonged to Barry Friedman who was kind of managing uh, Stephen Stills and Richie Foray who had who were together in LA to form a band as well and one of them and it's interesting that that all three of them claim they were the one <laughs> that spotted the the hearse because Neil loved hearses and he was driving a 1953 Pontiac hearse with Ontario license plates because he'd been living in Ontario then and uh, who whichever one it was spotted the hearse and honked the horn and managed in rush hour traffic to maneuver their way behind the hearse honking the horn and they pulled into Ben Frank's uh, restaurant parking lot and got out and um, they all the only person that they didn't know was Bruce Palmer but Neil had already met Stills Neil had already met Foray and um, they kind of embraced and hey it's good to see you and they went back to Barry Friedman's house and formed the band that night but the, the censure for Neil was that a song that he'd written in uh, the fall of 1965 called Nowadays Clancy Can't Even Sing, which in many ways was a metaphor for the fact that his career had stalled. I mean, nobody wanted to hear him as a folk singer. He couldn't get any gigs in Toronto with his band, uh, The Squires. So it's it's out of frustration that he wrote this song about a guy that he, a classmate that he knew at Kelvin School in Winnipeg, who everybody used to pick on him. So he decided, so he stopped singing. He used to sing in the halls. Everybody used to pick on him. So he stopped. And, and Neil sort of took that as a metaphor for, you know, I'm not getting anywhere in my career, so you know, maybe I should stop doing this too. And he taught it to, to Richie Foray in uh, the fall of 1965 on a, on a brief weekend trip to New York. And Foray took it in February of 66 to LA uh, to meet Stills and taught it to Stills. And the two of them worked out a version of it. So here they are together at Barry Friedman's house uh, on Fountain Avenue in, in Hollywood. And Stills and Foray play Neil their their arrangement of his song. So even though Neil, it took Neil, you know, a few more months to get to Hollywood, get to L.A., his song arrived before he did. And he said he knew right away and we had to form a band together. So it, it, it's just so, so quick. And it, it, it is. It's the stuff of myth. It's the stuff. I mean, you couldn't make a Hollywood movie like this because no one would believe it. And let's go ahead and hear it. This is the Buffalo Springfield's first single with Richie Foray on vocals, but it's a Neil Young song. Nowadays, Clancy can't even sing. Where's that silhouette I'm trying to trace? Who's putting sponge in the bells I once rung? And taking my gypsy before she's begun to sing it. 
Was a Buffalo Springfield's debut single. Nowadays, Clancy can't even sing. Written by Neil Young, but sung, as you said, by Richie Ferrey. And and this is, you know, my personal experience with the Buffalo Springfield comes with my big brother having the Neil Young Decade album, and which started with mm-hmm. several of his songs from the Buffalo Springfield songs. That I love Mr. Soul, Burned, uh, Old Laughing Lady. I think is on there. And then when I finally tracked down Buffalo Springfield, I got the Buffalo Springfield Again album because that's the one the Rolling Stone record guide gave five stars. And I was the kind of drone that did what I was told by the music critics and, and <laughs> you know, had to get the right album. And so I didn't get that first album. And, I, and it really wasn't until and – and over the years, I've tried to get into it. And various friends of mine who are big folk rock heads are like, oh, man, the first album is the one you got to get into. And it wasn't until I read this book and went back to that I finally got it, that I snapped to on that first album and what the original concept of the band was. The band was supposed to have Richie Foray as the lead singer with Neil Young right. and Steve Stills as supporting songwriters and harmony singers. And it totally changed the game. And it had a, you know, most of the first album has a unified sound and, you know, it's an adjustment because I think Steve Stills and Neil Young both go on to really be key architects of what we think of as rock music you know with crosby stills nash and young whereas buffalo springfield is folk rock or folk pop rock really i mean it's right in the spirit of 1966 in this time before everything got so serious and bands were just trying to make hits so it's um you know a total uh, gestalt change for me on how to how to perceive the band do you see it that way as well Oh, exactly. You know, when you talk to, you know, Richie uh, and and uh, I mean, I talked to Dewey and to Bruce as well uh, and, and Neil, but certainly those the, those three guys, they said that, that the best album of all was the first album, because that's the only album where we played like a band. And you notice that when you listen to uh, Again, the second album, and you listen to Last Time Around, it's more uh, singular vocals with maybe some harmonies. But on that first album, you've got Stills and Ferre singing together quite often. And, and as you say, Ferre is singing three of Neil Young's songs because Neil didn't have much confidence in his voice. And yet Neil still sings two songs on, on the album as well. But there's there's an interesting little, if, if you've got the original album, I don't know, on CD or, or a vinyl, I think it's the same. It's got a list of little you know, words and phrases to describe each guy. And, you know, with, and it had their kind of hometowns. And for Neil, it said Winnipeg, Manitoba, which made everybody here excited. But it says under stills at the bottom, it says, Steve's the leader, but we all are. And bingo, right there from the start, there's, there's going to be the problem. Because Stephen always regarded it as his band, and Richie Ferrey had, had said it, Steve was the boss right from day one. It was his band. But Neil couldn't, Neil couldn't accept that because up to that point, Neil was the boss of, of every band he had been in, and it, uh, he, he didn't quite like the idea of being second fiddle to someone else. So you've got these ego problems right from the start. But you know that first album was brilliant because, as I said before, it was all original material. From you know, I think Neil had five songs and Stills had seven songs. You know, Stills had a more commercial ear, and yeah, there's it's very folk influenced, but it's also got you know pop leanings as well. A number of those songs could have been hit singles, you know, had they been released uh, as singles, and and as well um, had they been produced better. And that that was another problem as well, having to do with uh, record label and management kind of getting in the way of it all. Yeah, and they'll do that. But let's backtrack a little bit and talk about the backgrounds of the main guys. What was Stephen Stills' background? How did he come? Like he came out of a group called the Agogo Singers from the the club Agogo in New York, along with Richie, which is pretty much a straight up Kingston Trio style, big you know seven eight nine members I think all of them singing, very slick polished folk pop early 60s style stuff which you know that's kind of a forgotten era we we overwrite the kingston trio and peter paul and mary and sort of ignore it and pretend it never happened but there was you know some immensely popular music and you know people like stephen stills and richie furay were really trying to succeed in that game but that wasn't the whole of steve stills musical background what else was he bringing to the table 
Well, he brought a lot of different influences, a very eclectic taste that he had because he brought in blues uh, and rock and roll and, and even Latin music because he'd lived for a time with his family, I think, in, in, in Nicaragua or Honduras. And so he brought those influences in there as well. You know, you mentioned about the, the folk era. The go-go singers are kind of patterned after the new Christy Minstrels or the Serendipity Singers, which were these, you know, like you say, multi-ensemble folk groups. And there really wasn't anything that original about the Agogo singers. I mean, they sang all these harmonies. and they did, they did kind of popular folk songs of the day, like Where I'm Bound and San Francisco Bay Blues and that sort of thing. But Stephen was the main guitar player in the group, and he sang on their, their album, uh, High Flying Bird, which would influence Neil in his band, The Squires, to change the band's name to The High Flying Birds. But Richie was the lead singer, and he stood out, and he you know, front and center in the group. And Stephen was another voice of, you know, the seven or eight others in in the group at that time too. They all kind of shared that vocal. But yeah, Stephen was uh, very much schooled in a lot of different influences. And what's interesting is you hear those influences. Well, on the three Buffalo Springfield albums, but certainly in his career after that, and you know, looking at a song like Uno Mundo on the third Buffalo Springfield album, you know, it's all Latin rhythms and, and stills brought that. And, and a song like My Angel, which he recorded during the time of, of the Springfield and later recorded in one of his solo albums, very, very bluesy. So he brought, brought that with him. And uh, that certainly was a strength that the Buffalo Springfield had because of stills. But then you've got Neil Young coming in and he's, he's a rock and roller guy with his, you know, played in the community club dances here in Winnipeg for several years, years. But he he would also every Sunday go to the Hootenannies at a, a folk club in Winnipeg called the 4D or Fourth Dimension. So he kind of had one foot in each canoe here in that sense that he loved rock and roll, but he also liked folk music. And it was the the uh, the, the lyrics of folk music that appealed to him and the beat of rock and roll that appealed to him. So, you know, we see him putting that all together. His his lyrics are deeper than Stills' lyrics, but Stills can write a commercial song more than Neil can. Okay, so uh, and and Richie coming from that folk thing again, 1958 to 1964 was this thing called the folk boom. And you're right. It started with the Kingston Trio and Tom Dooley. And if you look on the second Buffalo Springfield album on the back where they list all their influences, each guy you know got to put forth about, you know, nine or ten different people. And and uh, you have Richie and Stephen putting out the, the Kingston Trio on that list and Neil Young putting out Ian and Sylvia because he loves four strong winds. Interesting, too, that that Neil Young. Young uh, included on that list Randy Backman from Winnipeg, who you know, would be in the Guess Who and later Backman Turner Overdrive, who was a huge influence on Neil Young when he was first starting out here in Winnipeg. And and Dewey coming in, Dewey Martin, play, having played with you know Farron Young and played country music, um, and Bruce Palmer, who played rock and rhythm and blues in Toronto with bands like uh, the Sparrows and the Minor Birds. So quite. I, I mean, they, they drew from a very diverse palette of music, the Buffalo Springfield, and you hear all of those influences in what they do. Yeah, and the Sparrow was a band that included several people who went on to be in Steppenwolf, and the Minor Birds yeah. uh, was fronted by Rick James and then uh, included Bruce Palmer on bass and eventually Neil Young on lead guitar, and they even signed with Motown and made a record until Rick James' legal problems uh, sunk them. Well, let's go ahead and hear the B-side of that first uh, Buffalo Springfield single, this is a country rock flavored song written by Stephen Stills, but sung by both Stills and Fure. This is a Go and Say Goodbye. You asked me to read this letter that you wrote the night before. And you really should know better, cause she's worth a whole lot more. Brother, you know you can't run away and hide. You don't want to see her cry Is that why you won't go and say goodbye? Then you said the fault was yours And you really were to blame and that was Go and Say Goodbye, written by Stephen Stills, but featuring a real heavy country sound, which was way ahead of its time in 1966. And I guess that's why the record label got cold feet and flipped it over and, and had Clancy as the A-side. Although Clancy's really a song I don't think that would have found a market until FM Freeform FM Radio came along just a couple years later in Northern California. So... Yeah, this is definitely where uh, uh, the fans can play the woulda, coulda, shoulda game and said, well, what if they put out this song or that song instead? 
of course, this is a band that's most famous for having the one big hit single, and that's for what it's worth. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But that song's kind of atypical of this early Buffalo Springfield run. It's it's Steve Stills on vocals, doing a very topical though folky lyric, um, and with arrangements that are a very mature rock sound. So it's kind of you know very much uh, cutting edge of 1967. And I think it's telling. You know, you talk in the book how Stephen had spent time in Greenwich Village. And he wasn't just trying to be the new Christy Minstrels or the, the Kingston Trio. He was also meeting and playing with guys like Tim Harden and Fred Neal and Richie Havens, people who would be kind of come along after Bob Dylan came along with the second wave of, I, I'm not big on the word authentic, but more authentic kind of folk or whatever, rougher, more personal, uh, a lot more uh, complicated lyrics. But another guy that Stephen met at the same time was Peter Tork, uh, or Torkelson is his given name, obviously famous for being in the Monkees. Did Steve Stills really audition for the Monkees? Yeah, yeah, he did. He auditioned for the Monkees, and uh, he didn't get it. A couple of reasons. Now, he has always said, you know, and this is this is where egos get into it when people tell their own stories. He's always said that um, he, he turned them down because he wanted to write his own music and they already had songwriters. But, you know, I talked to a few people who were friends with him at the time and knew him and also knew the guys you know, who became the Monkees. And um, one of them being Nareet Wilde, who was very close to the whole scene. And she said uh, Stills was very disappointed that they turned him down. And he carried that with him for months afterwards. And, you know, when when Peter Tork became you know hugely successful and the Springfield weren't quite there, um, Stephen was very jealous of it. They turned him down for two reasons, uh, none of which had to do with his singing or guitar playing or songwriting. It had to do with the fact that he was always he was already losing his hair. He had a receding hairline and he had bad teeth. If you look at early pictures of Stills, his teeth, I mean, you know, dentists and orthodontists salivate as they look at what they could do in his mouth. So they didn't want to have to deal with that, uh, you know, in a teeny bopper group that, that was being put together for television. So yeah, they turned him, they turned him down. But I think in terms of quality music, creativity and integrity, Stephen Stills beat Peter Tork definitely. There's another guy that Stephen Stills got to know in Greenwich Village, and that's Graham Parsons. Now Parsons was down from, from uh, Harvard University, he only spent about three months there. And he'd moved down to New York uh, with his uh, ultimately with his band, the International Submarine Band, but uh, Stephen and Graham talked about putting a band together and even had a few rehearsals before it kind of all fell apart. And and even before that, when John Sebastian and Zalianowski were putting together the Love and Spoonful, before Steve Boone joined, uh, Stephen auditioned to play bass in the Love and Spoonful. So he was a guy that was really you know trying to make it and you know willing to adapt to whatever was necessary. But you named some 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 key folk people that influence stills he's he is a great folk finger-picking style guitar player and he learned that in you know in hanging out with uh you know some of these these luminaries in in greenwich village and he i guess in many ways he brought more of the folk influence to the buffalo springfield than any of the others you know neil wrote some folk songs and dabbled in it but stills was steeped in it from being in greenwich village and and hanging out with these guys more so than richie Furet did now for what it's worth i mean it it's iconic i mean it is it has certainly uh, transcended the pop charts to become an anthem for the 60s. And in every movie, every documentary, even if it's commercials, you know, they tap into that song because it is so iconic and it immediately places you in 1966 or 67. Um, Stills has told some some really uh, tall tales about how he was inspired to write it. And he uh, even just recently, he, he was on, in some interview somewhere saying that, yeah, I was on the, I was on the front lines of that protest in, you know, in L.A. and we were fighting the cops and you know, all that. And that's nonsense because, uh, you know, even Neil Young told me that they were in Sausalito playing at a place called the Ark when that, you know, the Sunset Strip riot took place on uh, November the 12th, 1966. And they all watched it on a television uh, in their uh, motel room. And it inspired Stephen when he got back to L.A. to write that song for what it's worth. But he, he captured the zeitgeist of the times. And what's interesting, too, is that they'd only the last sessions for the debut album were only about six weeks earlier. But the maturity of their sound 
in going in and recording that song for what it's worth. Uh, it, it, it's, it's leaps and bounds above, you know, the, the quality of what they were recording and writing on that first album. That's not to say the first album wasn't very good because it, 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 writing wise, it's brilliant. Production wise, it's lousy. But um, for what it's worth is, is uh, a huge leap forward for them. Yeah. And it's very frustrating. They didn't um, really get put right into the studio and get to work on a second album. They cut a bunch of tracks around that time, but for various reasons, you know, that didn't come together. And, and when the second album was recorded, most of that stuff they recorded in that period was kind of pushed aside. But yeah, it's a it's a major leap forward. And you also mentioned in the book that the band they were playing with at the Ark in Sausalito was Moby Grape, who's kind of their their evil San Francisco twin. Uh, evil's probably yeah. not right. But but, you know, another three guitar band with with multiple yeah. singer songwriters and harmony vocals. And you mentioned this in the book, but Moby Grape fans will talk about it a lot more. Stephen Stills kind of swiped two different Moby Grape songs and put them together with his brilliant lyrical take to make for what it's worth. Like he, they had a song called Stop, where they the the whole stop look. You know, I think he improved the chorus, and then he took the melody, uh, the first melody from Murder in My Heart for the Judge, which is probably Moby Grape's greatest song, and because of that, it didn't get put on their first album. So. Moby Grape is probably the only band even more cursed than the Springfield. <laughs> so, well, you know, thank, thank goodness for Stephen Stills, uh, Peter Lewis from Moby Grape didn't sue him. And I think I interviewed him for the Springfield book and he was quite magnanimous about it. He understood that these things kind of happen along the way that people borrow from, uh, from others. But even the concept of Moby Grape was based around the Springfield because in the fall of 66, uh, some of the guys in the Springfield hatched a plan to replace Dewey Martin. Dewey Martin was older than the other guys, and he was certainly uh, very gregarious, boisterous, loud, and he was a heavy drinker. And um, it wasn't his drumming. His drumming was, was excellent. It was just his personality that kind of rubbed some of them the wrong way, uh, namely Stills. So, uh, you know, a covert audition was held with uh, Skip Spence, who was, had been the drummer in the Jefferson Airplane and had left them because he didn't want to be a drummer anymore. But he auditioned for the Springfield without Dewey knowing and, you know, was right there seeing the lineup, the, you know, the three guitar lineup. And when he went back to San Francisco uh, with his manager, Matthew Cates, they assembled a three guitar lineup, like you say, like, like um, you know, I don't want to say second rate because that's not the case at all, but a, a Buffalo Springfield clone, if you will, in terms of lineup. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. I think your research has really clarified, you know, who swiped what idea from whom over over that time period. But yeah, the bands were tied. They played together. They were peers at the time and, and really inspired each other. But let's take a quick sponsor break. And when we come back, we'll talk about what happened to the Buffalo Springfield to keep them from making it as big as they could have been. And so we talked about kind of the backgrounds of at least Stephen Stills, a little bit about Neil Young. Richie Furay kind of had more of the pop folk background, but he was also into country music deeply and authentically. He was into doo-wop and he was also into early rock and roll, especially the Everly Brothers and Buddy Holly uh, school of rock and roll. And he had done, you know, traveled out from Ohio and done the whole Greenwich Village thing. And that's where he met up with Stephen Stills and formed the Ogogo Singers. But Neil Young had a different background. I was pretty surprised to find out that he was a surf rocker before he started adding folk elements. So he was doing instrumentals. And yeah, and I, I quibble with surf, and I don't think I even use that term. Uh, and a lot of people do because they assume that if he's playing instrumentals, it must be surf instrumentals. Actually, the most of the instrumentals that he played, the ones that he didn't write because he wrote lots of them, uh, but the other ones were, were by The Shadows, uh, an English band that backed up uh, Cliff Richard but also had instrumental hits on their own. And Neil was a huge uh, Shadows fan and a huge Hank Marvin fan. you got to remember in, in, in Winnipeg, Manitoba, there's no ocean to surf. On. And there's certainly the waves aren't big enough on Lake Winnipeg and Lake Manitoba to go surfing. So he, it's not that he's playing surf music, it's that he's playing instrumental music, which I guess at, in 1963 kind of gets lumped into the, 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 the pipeline and, you know, ventures kind of stuff. Yeah, but yeah, he 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 recognized early on that, that the key to success was writing your own songs. So he was head of the curve um, from his musical contemporaries in Winnipeg, and he started out writing instrumental music, very melodic. And he has a he has a very melodic style to his guitar playing uh, before he then started singing. Yeah, and singing was what he struggled with. He added vocals uh, when the Beatles came out, 
And immediately the audience, you know, was skeptical of him as a singer. And then when he went to Toronto and like you said, the Squires couldn't get gigs, he tried to make it in the folk scene. And this was a very bustling folk scene. Joni Mitchell was there. Um, John Kay of Steppenwolf was doing acoustic folk uh, in that same scene around the same time. And Neil Young had a pretty bruising experience where people didn't like his singing and, and didn't get what he was trying to do. So that, you know, is part of why he ends up taking Bruce Palmer's invitation to join the Minor Birds and then ends up with Bruce coming down to California. And so there's already trouble brewing. I guess anytime you put Neil Young in a band, you've got trouble brewing. <laughs> well, yeah, he's, it's, I think David Crosby once said, it's, you know, anytime Neil walks into the room, it's his room. <laughs> you know, he's like that. Just just talking about the voice thing, when Neil made his first singing debut on a recording in Winnipeg in April of 1964, a song he wrote called I Wonder, at the end of the session, it was done on a little two-track recorder at a radio station in Winnipeg. At the end of the session, Neil walked up to the engineer and said, so what do you think? And the recording engineer said, you're a good guitar player, kid, but you'll never make it as a singer. So that, you know, that that certainly haunted him. And, and people always saying, oh, Neil, you can't sing. That that he had no confidence really in his voice, and 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 as we said, it was you know Richie was the the guy with the best voice of of the whole Buffalo Springfield band, and so it made sense for him to sing Neil's songs. But you know Neil has an ego, and so he wanted to make sure that he at least sang some of his songs. <laughs> yeah, and that's the thing that really comes through. And there's a quote you got from Neil Young that you have to give him points for self-awareness and, and the willingness to criticize himself. He's, he just comes out and says that I had to shit on a lot of people and leave a lot of friends behind to get where I am now, especially in the beginning. And it seems pretty much like everybody in the, in the Buffalo Springfield, you didn't have any quotes from Stills angrily trashing Young, but there are plenty of <laughs> from other sources. But Neil was the wild card and, and, Ah, perfect the, choice. Perfect choice of words. He was a wild card. He was a loose cannon. Yeah, and, and they 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 get together, um, and Barry Friedman is somebody I think doesn't get enough credit in the story. He was the guy driving the van. He had signed deals, I believe, right, with Stephen Stills and Richie Fury to be their manager. But he's pretty quickly edged out. Why did they not stick with Barry Friedman as the manager? Well, in come Green and Stone, uh, you know, Brian Stone and Charlie Green. And amongst their limited roster of, of acts they had signed was Sonny and Cher. So they had a higher profile. Barry Friedman, I mean, he became a clown named Fraser Mohawk. Uh, he put together Rhinoceros, which, you know, great music, but never went anywhere. Uh, he was a small time player. And Charlie Green and Brian Stone show up in a limousine. And uh, as Richie said, Stephen was absolutely you know, gaga when he saw that these guys had a limousine and he was pushing for them, uh, for the band to sign with Green and Stone. I mean, they, the way Barry told it to me was he met with Green and Stone somewhere, like a restaurant or something. And I guess it was maybe it was Charlie Green wrote on a napkin, you know, this is what we're going to give you to relinquish management of, of these guys. And it was take it or, you know, I mean, it, it, it was almost like something out of, you know, the Godfather. And so, you know, Barry realized that I, you know, I can't argue, I can't fight with these guys. They're, they're pretty big time. And so he accepted it. Uh, on the one hand, you can say that Green and Stone certainly brought a lot more publicity to the band and, you know, higher gigs and tours and also got them a recording contract with uh, Atco Records, a subsidiary of, of Atlantic Records. But on the other hand, there's Green and Stone who have their own egos and they think, oh, we'll be producers. We'll produce the, we'll produce the, you know, the Buffalo Springfield. And they didn't know what they were doing in the studio. I think it's, as, as Still said, they knew less than we did in the, in the recording studio. And so they figured they better learn how to produce themselves. So Green and Stone did a lousy job of that first album producing it. And, uh, you know, the bass, Bruce Palmer was a very distinctive bass player. He played in a very melodic style and a fluid style, different from most bass players who just kind of thump, thump, thumped on the root note of a chord. But he had a very, very distinctive style. And, and it's lost on that album. It just kind of goes, thump, thump, thump. I mean, you, you really don't have the, the quality fidelity to hear a lot of this. And uh, a lot of some of the background singing and things don't, don't you know, are, are buried on it as well. So on the one hand, Green and Stone, you know, elevated 
amazed the band almost immediately. I mean, they got them on the opening act for the Rolling Stones when the Stones played, you know, the Hollywood Bowl. But on the other hand, uh, they would prove to be a mistake. And uh, several of the guys that I interviewed for the band said we would have been better off signing with Elektra Records because Jack Holzman was very keen on signing the Buffalo Springfield. You know, he wanted them on his label. And he just couldn't come up with uh, the same amount of money that Atco had ponied up to sign the band. Yeah, and he, he got bid, outbid for the Moby Grape right around that same time. The Doors money hadn't really started. I guess at that point, the Doors money hadn't rolled in at all yet. The, the Doors hadn't put out That's the right. Album. Yeah, they hadn't signed the Doors yet. I mean, they had, they had Arthur Lee and Love, and they had the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. I mean, both bands, you know, brilliant, but it wasn't like they were they were you know raking in millions of dollars from record sales. Yeah, and, and, and um, you know, Friedman had already booked them at the Troubadour where he worked and then got them on yeah. tour with the birds immediately and then got them a, a stand at the Whiskey A Go-Go, which you describe as the peak of the band, because this is a period when Fure is front and center and they're united and they just blew people away and kind of triggered, like you said, a, a, a major label bidding war. You had, well, Electra wasn't a major at the time, but Electra was interested. Atlantic was interested. Warner Brothers was interested. Dunhill, Lou Adler's band, who had the mamas and papas were interested, but they went with Atco, which was an Atlantic subsidiary. And yeah, and I think another big Because problem- of a limousine. <laughs> because they were starstruck. You know, it's interesting that... Um, they did that birds tour, you know, and that really that's the first exposure they're getting. Other than they did a, you know, a, a Monday night hoot night at uh, at the Troubadour on the 11th of April, but it was it was uh, Jim Dixon and Eddie Tickner who were managing the birds who wanted to sign the Springfield on the basis of Chris Hillman, who had seen them rehearsing and thought they were a great band, and suggested that that to Green and not Green and Stone to uh, Dixon and Tickner that they put put the band on on their tour and you know as it turned out you know Dixon and Tickner didn't end up managing the band yeah and and another uh you know what if there but let's hear our next song and this is an intriguing this is one of those outtakes from the box set uh, that came out in the 90s and this is a song called Down 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 and Buffalo Springfield fans and Neil Young fans should recognize this because it was later rewritten uh for for a song Neil Young called Broken Arrow on the second Buffalo Springfield album. But this one, you can hear Fure and Stills both singing on this. So this is more of the unified band's take on a Neil Young song. This is Down, Down, Down. That was Down, 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 another Neil Young song sung uh, by the Springfield collectively. And so they've got a record label. They've got management, although it's the wrong management. And it's funny, you know, Steve Stills was so impressed by the limo, but Neil Young seems to have been freaked out by the limo because he wrote so many songs about this experience of <laughs> limousines. Of, of limousines. <laughs> he keeps mentioning limousines. And I think Fure is in the one in the book that, um, you know, Kind of says, I think we weren't in that many limos. <laughs> well, you know, the thing too about Green and Stone, they they won Neil over you know, initially because they rented cars for all the guys. So they rented a Corvette for Neil. So here's Neil driving around in a car he doesn't have to pay for. <laughs> so that that pretty much impressed him. Plus the fact that Green and Stone got them credit at uh, at a music store in town, so they could then get uh, you know Fender Showman and Fender Twin Amps. And Neil had had traded in his beloved Gretsch uh, guitar, you know, when he moved to Toronto in, in 65. So he went out first thing and bought another orange Gretsch 6120 guitar. So, you know, Green and Stone really kind of flashed the money uh, and not just stills, but uh, the others also jumped at it as well. You know, one thing I want to say about Down, 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 what amazes me is is that song is so 
fabulous that here was a band who had stuff that they didn't even have the ability to put on. They chose not to put it on that first album. <laughs> you know, I mean, that takes that speaks to the quality of the music that they had and that they were writing and and rehearsing. And and you get that same thing through that period of you know from like January of '67 until the second album comes out like in November of '67. So many tracks, many of them show up on the box set that they recorded that were fabulous that didn't make it just for whatever reason bad timing they didn't have a, an album you know to, to do or whatever uh so the, the, these guys were writing all the time yeah and i think one of the key things or maybe a possible explanation for why the material was so much material was left in the vaults and why the second album was so disjunct you know wasn't a coherent whole was that green and stone were the kind of guys who whispered in everybody's ear rather than you know there's certain kind of band managers i I view brian epstein of the beatles obviously he made some mistakes around merchandising and song publishing but he had a vision for what the band was and he saw himself as a, a lever in the middle that balanced out john and paul and made sure that george and ringo got their shine as well and kept the band focused you know and navigated them through things like paul mccartney's yesterday and didn't release it as a single in england and things like that to keep the balance of the band whereas green and stone didn't have that kind of sophistication and when you're dealing with egos like stills and young any hint of baby you're the star is going to go way further <laughs> yeah you're absolutely right about you know Brian Epstein is a perfect example he represented and, and he understood the whole rather than the the individual parts but I mean even in the birds I mean Gene Clark they were people whispering in his ear you're the guy you're the guy you write the songs you know you're bigger than them and then when Gene left for a solo career those voices are in David Crosby's you're saying you're better than they are you're better than they are that sort of thing so it it, it, it takes certainly away from the cohesiveness of it. And yeah, they were, you know, Stills was hearing these voices and Young was hearing these voices and Young was hearing it from Jack Nietzsche, who had certainly a lot of you know pedigree behind him, having crafted the wall of sound for Phil Spector. And he's in Neil's ear saying, oh, you're better. You can do better records than them, that sort of thing. But you're right. Green and Stone didn't didn't push a cohesive unit. And in addition to ego problems, the other thing that really dogged the band was Bruce Palmer's drug habits, especially his habit of getting arrested for drugs. What was the deal there? Yeah, Bruce. Uh, Bruce liked his LSD, and uh, yeah, he got busted at, at a couple of critical points in in the band's uh, you know momentum, and and uh, really hurt the, hurt them. I mean, here's for what it's worth: you know, rising up the charts, it got to number seven, and it's it's the song everybody remembers of you know from the band. But he got busted in in New York, and both he and Neil were in the states you know illegally to work. I mean, you could go to the states as a Canadian, but to work you needed work permits, and so he was deported and that period of instability from you know mid January pretty much until uh, June or the end of May when Bruce comes back and then Neil leaves uh, really hurt them because they should have had an album out I mean with for what it's worth being you know a hit they should have been putting out uh, a second album and even Atco Records pressed a cover and gave it the name Stampede, and we're hoping that the band would then submit tracks to go with that album, but they just weren't in no position to be able to get it together to be able to to uh, to do that. And then again, Bruce gets busted, uh, you know, virtually a year later, January of 68, but this time in California, and again, they send him back to Canada. Uh, he had snuck across the border in, in May of 67 and played with the band, then he got busted and was gone, and that's when Jimmy Messina joined the band. But all at critical points, you know, in the band's, you know, progress. And at that point, I mean, and Neil had quit the band you know, three times. So at that point, they just kind of, you know, spring of 68 said, you know, to hell with this. You know, we just can't, we just can't keep doing this over and over again, starting up all over again. So it, it, it's those kind of problems. And it's, you know, record label problems because they argued over what would be the follow-up to for what it's worth. And, you know, Neil wanted Mr. Soul, because he wanted the A-side. Stephen had the A-side for, for what it's worth. But in the record label's eyes, Stephen is now the voice of the band because he got the hit. And for an awful lot of radio listeners, they'd not heard anything by the Buffalo Springfield until for what it's worth. And, oh, that's the singer in the band. So to throw Mr. Soul out as a single with a new voice and an odd voice to, you know, to begin with as well, you know, 
Ahmed Erdogan and Atlantic Records, which owned ADCO, said, no, I mean, we're not going to put Neil as the A-side on this. He can be in the B-side. And that really ticked Neil off. Because as, as, as you and I have been talking about throughout this, there was a lot of competition between Stills and Young. And, um, you know, it's like one would get the A-side, one would get the B-side kind of thing. And now because Stills had the A-side for, for what it's worth and Neil had the B-side of that, do I have to come right out and say it? Um, Neil wanted the A-side. And in the end, the record label said, no, we're putting Bluebird an edited version of it on the A side of Mr. Soul on the B side, you know, and, and, you know, and soon after that, Neil kind of uh, took his football and went home. Yeah. And one thing we haven't mentioned is Neil Young started having epileptic seizures around this time. And this is really, I guess he'd had a couple before the band, if that's right, but and he really did. Yeah, in Winnipeg, it. he'd had some seizures in Winnipeg. I don't know about this time in Toronto, but he'd had seizures in Winnipeg and was diagnosed. But it's this period of his life when the seizures are at their worst. It's not something you hear about so much later on during his career. It reminds me of, uh, you know, the tragic story of Ian Curtis of Joy Division later on, who's plagued with seizures as the band um, becomes more successful and ultimately kills himself on the eve of their American tour in 1979. And Neil... I think this one thing about this book that's different from other accounts I've read, mostly about Steve, you know, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, other books about them, is that the nature of Stephen Stills' personality doesn't quite come through in this book. Did you take it easy on Stills? Because so many people talk about him as this sort of, you know, went to military school and tried to bark his orders and boss everybody around. And uh oh, Steph's telling me I've got to play my next song before we come back. But let's hear Stephen Stills' Rock and Roll Woman. This is from their second album, Buffalo Springfield Again. That was Stephen Stills singing lead on Rock and Roll Woman. And I was wondering if the book kind of goes easy on Stephen and is harder on Neil, because that's the way Richie felt, that he didn't really mind Steve's dominant personality and aggression, but he did mind Neil Young's flakiness. Yeah, the, the thing about Neil Young is um, if you bark orders at him, he's just going to walk away. He doesn't argue. He doesn't fight back. He just simply writes you off. I mean, if you don't, if you don't see it his way, you're just not in his world anymore. You know, and he moves on. And Stephen was a much more aggressive personality. And Neil being aggressive, maybe even passive aggressive, he just rebels against it. And, and that's why he was quitting the band, you know, ultimately three times, because um, he couldn't see himself as second fiddle. And Stephen Stills was not going to be anybody's second fiddle because it was his band. And, he, and all he had to do was point to, you know, a gold record on the wall that said, for what it's worth, you know, written by Stephen Stills. You know, you want to argue with me? Look at that. You know, this is our only hit, guys, and it's me. So, yeah, there, there was that certainly a divergent personalities that that, uh, that that existed there. Did I go light on Stephen? Well, here's the thing. I interviewed Dewey. I interviewed Bruce. I interviewed Neil. I interviewed Richie. I couldn't get to Stephen Stills. So any quotes from Stephen Stills were from existing interviews that, that had been done. So uh, it wasn't a conscious effort to, to go light on him. I think there are some people who are pretty hard on him uh, in the book, but uh, I just didn't have his voice. And sometimes you just have to realize when you're doing these kind of books that, you know, there are, there are a few people who are not going to agree to be interviewed, who are above that sort of thing. And so Stills was one of those guys I just uh, couldn't get to. But the thing is, too, on the, 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 the book that kind of had preceded it, although I'd done a, you know, a couple of books in between, but the book that sort of set up my, my Buffalo Springfield book was my Neil Young book. And it was Neil Young, you know, the, 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 the struggling kid with the Gretsch guitar here in Winnipeg, playing, writing songs, and trying to make it, and leaving friends behind, and all that sort of thing. It was his way the highway goes to Toronto, goes to Thunder Bay, and nothing happened. Goes to Toronto, nothing happened. Goes to LA, and all of a sudden things start happening. He's an underdog, and he's an underdog that you um, that you root for. 
he becomes a very sympathetic character in in that book. And it's not for anything that I directed in in that first book, but it's it's really that's what he was like. But he gets success with the Buffalo Springfield, and all of a sudden, it's a different Neil Young. It's it's he wants everything his way and he doesn't want to be second fiddle to anybody else. All of that then happens. So you have a marked contrast between the Neil Young of my Don't Be Denied book and the Neil Young of my Buffalo Springfield book, because that's what happened. I mean, he he now had success and, and, and in a moderate way. They certainly didn't have financial success at all. But, you know, they've, they've got some notoriety and acclaim. And, you know, they're 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 cocks of the walk on, you know, on the Sunset Boulevard and, the, and the, the Strip and all those clubs, not necessarily everywhere else. But it, it was a, a change in his personality. Stills, too. And there are people who I interviewed who knew Stills, you know, all around that time who said that when once the success came, it was validation to him that he was talented. He was creative. He was good at what he did. And so that exacerbated those kind of ego feelings as well. And let's talk about some of the particular events that Neil Young flaked out on. There's two in particular, the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and the Monterey Pop Festival. How on earth do you drop out of those kind of gigs? Well, The Tonight Show was kind of a, a, a comfortable guise for him. He had already decided to leave the band after they'd made the decision to relegate Mr. Soul to a B-side. And he'd already started recording without the other guys in the band. And you have an example of that being Down to the Wire, which you know was on that you know, triple decade Neil Young album, and a different version coming out on the Buffalo Springfield box set album. I mean, he's recording largely on his own. And he starts working with Jack Nietzsche, and Jack Nietzsche saying to him, you know, we can make better records. We, we can do better than you're doing with the Buffalo Springfield. So it was at a convenient point to be able to say, I just don't want to be in TV, and, and quit the band. But it, it was precipitated by a, a number of you know issues and people whispering in his ear, and he just decided this was the point I'm going to leave the band. And it just so happened that Monterey, you know, happened you know two about two weeks after, or three weeks after he left the band. What always what always I guess kind of annoys me is when I read somewhere you know someone's talking about Monterey or talking about the Springfield or David Crosby saying David Crosby replaced Neil Young at Monterey. No, he didn't. Doug Hastings replaced Neil Young, and he was hired within a few days of Neil leaving as the lead guitar player in the band. Now, Doug couldn't sing and um, couldn't write. So, you know, that that kind of limited the band that way. And, and when it came from Mon- to Monterey, Richie Ferre had tonsillitis. He, he had his tonsils out, you know, after Monterey. But he wasn't singing as well, as strong. And they lacked, I mean, Neil used to sing, you know, background vocals, and they lacked that as well. So that's why they asked Crosby to help them out vocally, but not guitar-wise. And, you know, Bruce, uh, Bruce Palmer and Dewey Martin, you know, I mean, both guys have passed away now, but they were both incensed that, you know, what the hell was David Crosby doing there? So Stephen made that decision maybe he consulted Richie, but they didn't know anything about it until, you know, there's David Crosby rehearsing with them. And then he's playing with them on stage. Neil left the band again in um, early 1968. And then when they announced they were going to be touring with the, with uh, the beach boys, he came back and actually had, had you know photos taken, publicity photos of the four of them together. And then Neil comes back, so they got to get the picture of the five of them. And then they, the band gets busted, and Neil and Richie and Messina get you know arrested, and Stills escapes through the window and all that. So Neil says, "That's it, I'm done. I'm quitting the band again after the Beach Boys tour." So it, Richie, Richie really kind of summed it all up in the book when he said, "We all sort of knew that Neil was looking." always looking for a solo career. And the band was kind of his uh, safety net. Yeah. And, and it was a frayed safety net and, you know, plenty of opportunities to fall through, fall through the cracks. And that to me, it was kind of poignant that that last, and it was a party that Eric Clapton was at and Eric Clapton actually got arrested too. And at the time, you know, he yeah. was still in cream, I believe. And, you know, one of the biggest superstars in rock music and, that was just kind of the last bit of bad mojo to hit the band. And it wasn't a serious bust. And there was one more question I want to ask about Bruce Palmer as well. His busts are all for marijuana possession, but was his drug habit and his status worse than that? I mean, was it a case of he just had too much pot on him or, you know, had bad luck or was set up or whatever, or did he really have a serious substance problem in this period? 
Oh, he had a serious substance abuse problem. Um, and you know, he smoked marijuana every day, and he took LSD probably every every other day. And it was just part of his personality and part of who he was. Oh, he's cool. He's zen. Ooh, he's spaced out. That kind of thing. Uh, you know, wasted man in Hollywood sort of an imagery. But, um, yeah, no, he had, he had uh, a lot of drug issues. I mean, none of the guys in that band were choir boys. I mean, and Dewey drank a lot. He maybe smoked some pot. Um, but, you know, the other guys in the band had all, you know, were all, you know, experienced pot smokers. And, you know, Neil never took LSD because of his epilepsy. But, you know, they, 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 they weren't novices in terms of, of drug abuse. You know, we, we talked earlier about um, Neil's epilepsy. One of the reasons why it, it became uh, more predominant during the Springfield time was the fact that they often played with, with light shows. And strobe lights, I mean, it, 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 even if you look it up, epilepsy can be triggered, triggered by strobe lights. And so Richie said that they would, they would always tell a promoter before going on stage, do not use strobe lights. And either they would forget or they oh, we really care, it's really cool. And then and it would trigger a seizure. And Richie said he got very adept, meaning Richie, at being able to grab Neil's guitar and hold on to it while Neil hit the floor. And it's interesting, too, that, that I, I have you know, recollections from, from people who saw this show who thought this was a part of the act. Oh, we're going to go to the show tonight and see the guitar player have an epileptic fit, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So, again, that, that compounds a lot of the problems. And we're sort of working our way, you and I in discussing this, working our way towards the, the second album, Buffalo Springfield, again, which should have been done six months earlier. But in marked contrast to the first album, Buffalo Springfield, again, is like three you know three individual artists doing their own songs and in fact it was kind of like that there not, not all of the songs have all the all the members of the band on them uh, on tracks there and you have this the the singular voices rather than the the doubled voices or the harmony voices you know doing unison lead singing together it's still songs it's neil's songs it's richie's songs uh dewey has a song in there too but it it, it showed the fragmentation and it showed how each of them was moving apart from the others yeah, it's a great album, but it's kind of analogous to the Beatles' White Album in that you've got multiple solo artists working on their own track, which yeah. for a band's second album, it, it just speaks to there's a lot more work they could have done together before they reached that point. And then the third album is basically Richie and then Jim Messina, the new bass player who's brought in, are stuck with a contractual obligation and a couple of tracks from Steven and a couple of tracks from Neil, and they have to put the whole third album together. How did that play out? Well, I interviewed Messina in detail about this because I did a big article and I think it was like Goldmine magazine about that album. And he said, you know, it got to the point where Stills was already hanging out with Crosby and, and looking towards a solo career. Neil was already looking towards a solo career as well. So they weren't interested, except that Stills was still putting out quality tracks. Neil gave them uh, I Am a Child, which he had recorded largely on his own. And where Stills was still committed and, and the tracks that Stills puts on that album are, are really great tracks. But yeah, it was left to Messina and Fure. And even though it often says, you know, Richie did most of the work on that, that's that's not true. Messina did. And Ahmet Ergen went to him and said, you, you, you owe us one album. These guys aren't going to do anything about it. You have a mountain of, of, pre, of stuff you've already recorded. I trust you, Jimmy, to put this all together. And so Jimmy with Richie did that. And Neil hated the album and he's never said a good word about it ever, uh, including omitting some of the tracks on that album on his, uh, on the Buffalo Springfield box set. Um, but according to Messina, Stills was still up there and, uh, and pitching, although not using all the members of the Buffalo Springfield. He was hanging out with Buddy Miles, so Buddy Miles is on the album, and David Crosby's on the album. You know, those, those sorts of, of uh, you know, <laughs> hanging with the stars, I guess. I like Last Time Around a lot, and, um, and it wasn't that it had, to, had it had to grow on me, because sometimes albums have to grow on people. I liked it right from the get-go. I thought it was a great, great album. And, and as I point out, I think, in the book, reviews of the album were, were sterling. I mean, people love, people loved the album, but you know, Neil Young didn't, didn't like the album. I think it was, a, I think what, what Messina and Fury did was take whatever they could salvage. And some, you know, a couple of tracks to date back a year uh, and some new recordings and make a very credible final statement of the Buffalo Springfield. Yeah, it's it's definitely an album that holds up, and it's kind of a preview of coming attractions for what they were going to go on together and do with Poco. Mm. 
And um, with Steven's songs being a kind of a preview of what he's about to go ahead and do with Crosby, Stills and Nash and Neil's songs, uh, a preview of, of his career before he manages to weasel his way into Crosby, Stills and Nash, which given the history of Springfield, it's just amazing that Stephen agreed to that. But that's a whole different story. And I talked to Peter Doggett about that previously. But one other character that I haven't brought up that I want to mention is this guy, Dickie Davis, who was kind of the road manager. Uh, he'd been involved with Barry Friedman early on and was part of the team that he kind of helped bring in Green and Stone. But he ends up being Poco's manager and there's this complicated record label trading at the end of the band. Like how does Poco end up on Epic? How does Crosby, Stills and Nash end up on Atlantic and Neil Young end up on reprise? Well, you know, being from Canada where hockey reigns supreme, it was like a hockey trade, you know, one guy for one guy from team to team in order to free up Graham Nash. They had to get him, you know, uh, off of Epic. And so David Geffen actually did did uh, the legwork to to arrange that kind of a, a swap to get uh, to get Nash free because uh, Nash's membership in Crosby, Stills and Nash was more important at that point than Richie's presence with Poco uh, on, on Epic Records. So it was driven by the need to get Nash free. And, oh, yeah, okay, well, we'll put Richie over here with, with his band, uh, Poco, and sign that. It was very unique for its time. You didn't hear that kind of thing going on of, of swapping players by record labels. But clearly, Atlantic Records saw the future and the money in getting Nash in with Crosby and Sills, and they did with Richie Foray and his you know, little country band, Poco. Which I think had more commercial prospects than it. I mean, in retrospect, it's seen as too soon. It was country rock ahead of its time. But apparently mm -hmm. Dickie Davis made some mistakes as manager around the cover art of the first album that caused Epic to not push Poco. So there's another coulda, woulda, shoulda. And before I let you go, I want to ask oh. about... Well, go ahead. But, but I mentioned about Dickie. You know, Dickie started as road manager, and then when things started falling apart, and and, and the band bought out Green and Stone, Dickie stepped in to be manager of Buffalo Springfield, and he was friends with Richie, so he became manager of Poco. But even Richie said to me, he said Dickie was a mistake. He didn't know what he was doing as a manager. He made mistakes. He didn't do the right things to get the profile raised in the band. So sorry, <laughs> I wanted no, no, to mention no, that. No, yeah, that's and that's important stuff. I just want to ask one last question. And this is a story that's not in the book that I'd read elsewhere, and I just want to see if you can confirm or deny. There's a story I read that Neil Young, that at one point um, Geffen and Elliot Roberts, is that right, um, were around the band and talking about managing the band, and that Neil Young in rehearsal threw a temper tantrum and said, you know, I insist that we fire these guys. We cannot work with these guys. And then later that night shows up at Robert's house, knocking on his window and say, Hey, will you manage my solo career? Do you know if anything, have you come across that particular story of Neil Young shenanigans? I heard that they were on a bus, the band Springfield on a bus heading for a gig somewhere. And on the bus too was Elliot Roberts and Neil leaned over to him on the bus and said, uh, Hey, would you, you know, I'm leaving the band. Would you, well, for, I think it was, would you manage the band? And then, you know, a day or so later, he shows up at his house and says, I've left the band. Would you manage me? That sort of thing. Uh, Neil throwing a hissy fit. I mean, it's very rare that you see any evidence of Neil throwing a hissy fit. What Neil does is he just walks away. Yeah. I mean, you know, so he just packs up his guitar, goodbye, doesn't say anything. I mean, Neil, Neil didn't throw fits. Stephen Stills would throw fits because uh, <laughs> he was used to being the boss man. And then you mentioned the military school training and all of that sort of thing. Neil just, okay, I'm done with this and, and, and move on. And he just kind of crosses you off his list of people that he knows anymore, that sort of thing. So I'm not sure I buy the hissy fit, but I, I do know that, it, that, that Elliot was offered by Neil to manage the Springfield. And, and literally a day or so later, Neil comes to Elliot and says, um, you know, I, I'm out of the band. Would you manage me? <laughs> Looking out for number one. And so my guess well, is... Well, yeah, Randy Backman may have written that song, but he could have written it for Neil Young. <laughs> yeah, and if you ever wonder how you get to be Neil Young, you do things like that, or at least that was his path to, to that kind of success. So my guest today has been John Anderson, and the book is For What It's Worth, The Story of Buffalo Springfield. Thanks so much, John. Hey, my pleasure. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Thursday, 
Nate welcomes Scott B. Bomar to talk about the original birds from 1964 to 1967. Let it roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.